beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. I'm Laura Tremaine, and I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves, and the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. Each episode has a prompt or a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to a friend, or share on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. This is an episode that I have been wanting to do since the spring, but I wasn't quite sure how to approach it, to be honest. And I also wasn't sure if a topic like this fit on a show like 10 Things to Tell You, which aims primarily to foster connection. But you know what else this show is about? good conversations, and good conversation starters, which is why I'm always trying to pick topics that will interest you, that you want to hear more about, or that will spark a good conversation in your life. I also found from the listener survey this summer that y'all do want more culturally relevant topics covered here on the show. Specifically, some of you said you wanted a peek sometimes into the Los Angeles part of my life and how living in Hollywood forms parts of my perspective. And there is nothing talked about more in Hollywood in 2023 than the writer's strike. And then, of course, the actor's strike that followed. So this is something that, like I said, I have mulled around discussing for months now. But there are a few reasons that I'm only now doing this episode. The first is that while I am an ardent observer of these strikes, I am not actually on strike myself. (laughs) And many of my Los Angeles friends who have been on strike, whether as writers or as actors or both, They did not want to come on the podcast and discuss the strike publicly, and I totally get it. Unless you are already, like, very famous and successful, in which case you have less to lose, it is a risk to speak out publicly in some ways. No one wants to say the wrong thing. No one wants to risk getting quoted somewhere, not wholeheartedly towing the line, You know, no one wants to risk not getting hired again or, you know, sort of feeling like that they crossed the picket lines, even though that was not what they intended. I get why they were skittish. My friend Jill Killington, she did record an episode with me for the Secret Stuff Patreon this summer. We did it for Stephen King summer. We were talking about Stephen King. And she talked a bit on that episode, though, about how much that she used to make 10 years ago as a commercial actress and how little she would make now for the same job. She also talked about being in writer's rooms and how long it takes to get anything made, which means you're often making less and less as a writer while you are waiting for different projects to go or not. 
That was kind of a sidebar conversation to the episode with Jill. We were primarily talking about Stephen King and The Stand, but it had a lot of insight into some of the issues that we're going to discuss today. So if you are a part of Secret Stuff or you want to join it, that episode aired back in August, and it is so good. Also, if you've been around for a while, you might remember that years ago, I did a Hollywood series on my old podcast that was called Smartest Person in the Room. I had a Hollywood series. I interviewed writers, set designers, celebrity security, and more. I just loved making that series. I will link to it in the show notes if you're interested. It is a few years old. So, you know, I think I'm a better podcaster now than I was then. But those conversations are still amazing. Anyway, for this episode today, I'm a little bit of a stand-in for my writer and actor friends as I talk about this. And I'm going to try to get this right by translating some of the issues that Hollywood creatives are fighting for And then what was won in the recent Writers Guild negotiations and what is still to be fought for in the Screen Actors Guild negotiations and what all of this means for the average film and television viewer, why this should matter to you. And as a personal note, because I have gotten this question a few times on social media, my husband, Jeff, who is a producer and a director, he is in three guilds, the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild, and the Screen Actors Guild. What? You didn't know he was an actor? (laughs) But he primarily views himself as a director. That is where most of his work is. And the Directors Guild, they reached a deal back in June. They avoided a strike of their own. So still in support of the strikes this summer, he, of course, did not make the movie that he was supposed to be making or move forward with a potential TV show that was in the works. All of that that he was working on in the spring, it all got bumped to 2024. So that's the piece of it that sort of affects our family life. And, you know, after the pandemic where production shut down for a year or more, It bumped his last movie back. It has just been a slow season in this town. Everyone is feeling the effects of the strike that followed a pandemic, which is the other reason that I wanted to make this episode and bring these issues to your attention. I mean, I know it has been national news that Hollywood is on strike, but I so often feel like if it's not your industry or if it doesn't affect you directly in the moment, it's easy to ignore And I would argue that Hollywood affects all of us in one way or another. So after listening to my 10 things that I'm going to share here, maybe this will make for a good conversation over the dinner table with you this week or with your bestie, or just to give you something to think about or notice the next time that you turn on your TV. Okay, so 10 things to tell you about the Hollywood strikes of 2023. Number one, what are the basics of the strike? The Hollywood strike started in the spring with the Writers Guild of America, the WGA, after months of rumors that it was coming. So every three years, the contract between the WGA and the studios is up for renegotiation. They call this the MBA, the Minimum Basic Agreement. The MBA is the collective bargaining agreement that covers the benefits, the rights, and protections for most of the work done by the union members that are in the WGA, the Writers Guild members. The Writers Guild had several things this time that they wanted renegotiated in their contracts with the major studios that's called the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers, the AMPTP. You'll probably hear that phrase or see that written all over the place when you're talking about the strikes, the AMPTP. And in March, out of the 11,500 writers in the Writers Guild, that's their membership, 11,500 writers, 98.4% of them voted to authorize a strike if they couldn't reach an agreement on these changes that they wanted and that the studios were resisting. 98%, over 98% of the writers agreed to strike. I mean, that alone should tell you something because that's a crazy high number. Who can even uh, all agree on one thing like that? Those initial talks back in the spring, they went nowhere. And so on May 2nd, 2023, it was pencils down, the strike started. 
The writer's strike would go all the way until last week, September 27th, 2023. It went a full 146 days, making it the second longest strike in Hollywood history. Now, the writers were two and a half months into their strike when the actors joined in after their negotiations also failed. The Screen Actors Guild, called SAG, you probably have heard of that one, it has 160,000 members, so it is significantly bigger than the Writers Guild, and their strike started on July 14th. Fun fact, our family was in London celebrating my dad's 80th birthday this summer when the actor's strike started, and we happened to be staying at the same hotel where several cast members of Oppenheimer, the Oppenheimer movie, they were having their premiere. Like they were right in the middle of their UK premiere when the strike started. So right after the red carpet, but before the screening, the strike officially started. And so the Oppenheimer actors, their cast, had to leave the London premiere in the middle of it. And we saw some of them at dinner at the hotel. And I was like, trying to explain to our kids that we were literally witnessing history to see these A-list actors who had had to leave their premiere because they were on strike. I mean, it was a pretty fascinating moment. The actors, the Screen Actors Guild, they are asking for a lot of the same things that the writers were asking for, like streaming residuals and artificial intelligence protections. But there are some differences. We're going to talk about all of that in a second. But while the Writers Guild has now finally come to an agreement, their leadership has signed off on this negotiation. And the Writers Guild members themselves, they are voting this week, this first week of October, They have to vote to ratify the agreement and finalize everything. The actors, though, are still on strike. They entered a new negotiation round this week. And the thought is that the writers coming to an agreement would hurry along the Actors Guild negotiations. But I guess we shall see. As I am recording this, the Hollywood strikes of 2023 are not officially over yet. So number two of the 10 things to tell you about the Hollywood strikes. Number two is what is the history here? The first official Hollywood strike was way back in 1936, and that one was against the use of Army and Navy involvement in motion picture production. So it was a different time. In 1941, there was the Disney animator strike where more than 200 studio staffers at Disney went on strike. This was also about pay and equality. Strikes are very often about pay. And it also happened to be in the middle of making the movie Dumbo, which disrupted production on the animated feature Dumbo. That strike lasted 115 days. And apparently, I have not checked this out myself, but I read that there are some not so subtle jabs at the strikers that were drawn into the clowns in the final production of Dumbo. They brought in other animators to replace, I guess, during the strike, some of the Disney animators, and they kind of made fun of them in the drawings. Isn't that fascinating? In 1960, the actors and the writers went on strike for the first time at the same time. They were both striking at the same time. That wouldn't happen again until this year, 2023, making it a real rarity that the actors and the writers would be on strike at the same time That one also turned out to be one of the longest strikes in history, along with the 1988 writer strike. That one was 154 days. So almost all of these strikes have been about money. No surprise there. But there are some very interesting things about these 21st century strikes that really mark the moment. So the 2007-2008 strike... That's another one that gets brought up a lot when you're talking about it. It was 99 days, and this was the beginning of the streaming wars to come. I could not have imagined where TV was going back then, even though I was working in TV back then. That was the year I got married. It was also the year I was working on a reality TV show for the CW Network. It went union right in the middle of shooting the show which meant we had to radically change overnight the way that we shot a documentary-style reality show going from non-union to union. 
literally in the course of 12 hours. It was bananas. That chaos was actually part of the reason that I got out of TV production, honestly. (laughs) 2007, 2008, that strike, that was when reality TV was on the rise in a whole new way. It was no longer considered junk programming. Like a lot of things were happening in Hollywood at that time. And so that was a big issue for TV writers back then, obviously. And people that were savvier than me could see the writing on the wall for what the internet was going to do for TV and movies. Like a lot of things were changing really rapidly back then between scripted and non-scripted and how the internet was really changing the way that we consume entertainment. So the strikes in general back then and now are about money. They're also about technology, which is also about money. But before we get to exactly what the writers and the actors and the studios want in this season in 2023, it's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. Born Shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes, just like I did in my Born Sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season, they make high-quality shoes that feel as good as they look. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to bornshoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's born, B-O-R-N, shoes, S-H-O-E-S, dot com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping, available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. Y'all know that I love to play games on my phone to unwind, and I am always looking for a new one to download. And I recently ran across Two Dots, and I want to tell you about it. Two Dots is a free-to-download, puzzle-based game that involves connecting dots through relaxing puzzles while unlocking levels and collecting prizes along the way. There are different gameplay modes to make the experience unique and exciting with every single puzzle. There are over five thousand distinct puzzles with various power-ups and special dots ready to earn as you move through the levels. The in-app music and visually stimulating interface provide a soothing experience when you just want to relax and unwind. Not only is Two Dots free to download, but it can also be played without internet connection. So playing on the go offline is a breeze. And if you don't want to play alone, you can challenge your friends on Facebook as well as connect with the larger Two Dots community for even more engagement. If you're looking for the perfect game to help you relax but also keep you engaged, download Two Dots for free on Android and iOS. Let's talk about, really quickly, what Hollywood writers actually do. So number three of the 10 things to tell you is what exactly do Hollywood writers do and how do they get paid? Now, I know at first it seems obvious writers write scripted TV shows and screenplays for movies. And yes, that is correct, but it is not as simple as it sounds. There are all kinds of writers in Hollywood. As one Vox article that I was reading, it stated, Writers are the first block in the tower on which the rest of the product is built. And that is so true. At the beginning of every idea, you have to have the writer to develop it, to put words to it, for a pitch, to get a project made, all the way through to like onset writers who are ready to change up dialogue while you're actually shooting, like as you're going. There are screenwriters, there are writers' rooms, there are punch-up writers hired to punch up a script that's almost there but not quite. There are adaption writers who adapt something that's already made, that's already a book or something like that. There are showrunners who have created a whole show, but they use writer rooms for episodes and they 
flesh out full seasons together. There are just so many types of writers in Hollywood. And so I'm not sure that everybody knows that. So I wanted to make that clear. And because there are all kinds of different writers, they all get paid differently. I feel like the assumption is that everyone in Hollywood makes like gajillions of dollars. And because we see these really exceptional headlines sometimes, like that a script sold for a million dollars or that a movie made hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office, those stories, like those outlier exceptional stories, fuel the ideas that the general public has about how much money is flying around in this industry to the actual workers. (laughs) And I think it also fuels the idea of why LA people are so out of touch with reality. All summer, as I was watching like strike commentary online, I saw comments on Facebook threads and on news stories about how the rest of the world is like sort of playing the world's tiniest violin for writers and actors. Like people do not understand, I think, what the average writer and actor makes in Hollywood. The majority of screenwriters and TV writers, they do not make the crazy livings that you're imagining. There is a very small percentage of both the writers and the actors who make tons of money. It's just like any industry, I guess, in that there are the top, most famous, most forward-facing earners that are total anomalies And then there is everybody else. So writers in Hollywood get paid in a variety of ways. They might get paid for writing the original script, obviously. They might get paid for rewriting someone else's original script. They might get paid for adapting someone else's original work. They might get paid by the episode in a series that they're working on and on and on. Even in writers' rooms, people have different jobs as they're breaking down the story or writing for a certain character or writing certain scenes. Like, it's not cut and dry what a writer does or what that looks like. Salaries for both screenwriters and TV writers, they have been at the same level. This is me speaking generally. But they have been at the same level for years, despite the fact that there are more projects being made, like hundreds of more projects being made than there used to be because of streamers, mostly. According to the WGA, the average salary for a TV writer has actually declined 4% over the past decade. If you adjust that for inflation, it's a 23% decline in the salary of a writer. Meanwhile, the median screenwriter pay is the same, stayed exactly the same as it was in 2018, which adjusted for inflation means that for screenwriters, it has dropped 14%. So add in the fact that movies and TV shows are generally made in very expensive cities, that has greatly affected the cost of living for writers and their general annual wage and how, you know, that affects their life. The other part of the salary decrease is that episodic TV used to be like 22 to 24 episodes for a season of television. Remember that? Remember those days when we would all watch weekly for 20 plus weeks a show? Now, many of the most popular TV shows, they are like eight episodes in a season. So if you are paid by the episode, that is cutting your salary in half or more than in half. And then we have to have the residual conversation, which is a huge part of the reason for the strike. Depending on what the project is, if it's like going to a movie theater or a major network or a cable network or a streamer, a writer might get residuals. Residuals are payments that are based on the success of the project, kind of like a commission. So because you're getting a percentage, the more popular the thing is, the more you get paid. So more people watched it or it got sold into syndication. This is like when you see reruns of your favorite old shows on some kind of cable network, which means that you get a check, a percentage of how successful that thing was based on how it performed, either originally how it performed if it was a hit or as time goes on. And it is now viewed, you know, years later by people who loved it. Why is this 
the model, you might be asking. Why not just pay creatives like you would pay other employees? Well, there's a few reasons, and some of them might be outdated to the way that people watch TV now, but others are still relevant. Using residuals incentivizes good work in some cases. If you create a truly amazing show or movie that is going to bring in more dollars at the box office or more eyeballs that translates to advertising dollars, then yeah, I believe that you should be compensated for that. Being an artist is not the same as other types of jobs. But residuals have become very tricky in the streaming world because they're often ad-free. Streamers are often offering ad-free platforms, although a lot of that is changing and now, you know, you can pay a little less and get ads. But the streamers act like more viewers don't bring in advertisers, which would mean that a hit show wouldn't be bringing in new revenue. But of course, that is crazy because it brings in paid subscribers instead. The popular streaming studios that we all know, they are not very transparent about their ratings. They absolutely do not reveal how many people watched something, which makes it hard to calculate residuals. I mean, it makes it impossible. You might see when you turn on your favorite app on your smart TV or on your phone, you might see that a show or a movie is number one in the U.S. or it's like trending in the top 10 or something like that. But you will not know if that means 100,000 people watched it today or if it means 1 million people watched it today. We don't know. The creators of the show don't even know. The streamers keep that information so close to the vest. It's all very vague. I have experienced this firsthand living with someone who has made projects for streamers. You know that they know exactly how many TVs aired the Super Bowl. They know exactly how many people bought a movie ticket. But streaming numbers are like a mystery. I mean, they're not really a mystery. Someone knows. But they are not revealed. And so it is changing the way that writers are getting paid. Now, used to, you might take a more modest upfront fee, like, you know, paid at the beginning of the project, because you knew that you were going to have solid residuals. So it might be a very modest fee that you would then kind of recoup those costs by the good, solid residuals you would get later. Now you might get a bigger upfront fee, which seems good in the moment. You're getting paid as you're working on the project, but then you're getting almost nothing in residuals. So the math no longer adds up. It no longer equals out. Residuals used to be a main part of a writer's income as they like cobbled together a total yearly salary. And all of that has changed with the streaming model. And this is really affecting both the writers and the actors' sort of total salaries. The studio profits have been up. Get this. The studio profits have been up about 39% over the last 10 years. But as I've already laid out, these profits are not passed along proportionately. And so it is time to look at the way that these positions are paid. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating and, yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full-body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben-free. It is also pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. 
Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. Number four on 10 things to tell you about the Hollywood strikes. Number four is, okay, so why exactly were they striking? And number five is, what does striking mean? Can they work at all? So I've already laid out the main reason that both the writers and the actors are striking, which is money. Isn't it always money? But actually, there are other components, namely artificial intelligence, which is a biggie, minimal staffing requirements for the writers, which is one of the things that my friends are not all on the same page about, actually, and more. We're going to talk about those in a second. But right now, let's answer what they could and could not do during the strike, because that is the crux of a strike, right? And also, what has hit the industry the hardest is the actual action of striking, so not working. During the five months of the writer's strike, writers were not allowed to write on any projects or for any companies that are part of the AMPTP, so any kind of studios, official studios. But not only could they not do their jobs on these projects, they also could not take meetings about current or future projects. They could not promote any struck work, so if they wrote on a show that started airing during the summer, they couldn't talk about it. This part applies more to the actors since promotion of a project is part of the actor's job and it is not usually part of the writer's job. And that's a big deal actually though, because it's hard to promote movies when the stars are silent about it. Writers could write spec scripts, so scripts on speculation. This is just them writing a script on their own time in their own living room. So they could just write that script while they're not traditionally working, but they could not shop it or pitch it or do anything with it until the strike was over. They could also write projects that are not directly tied to the industry. So they could write books or magazine articles or things like that, things in a different medium. Being on podcasts was a little bit dicey for some people. If it was a fiction podcast, they had to like get special permission for that because it, of course, requires writing or on a conversational podcast, like where you could be seen to be being promotional. It was just a fine line to walk. That's sort of what I was saying earlier about why some of my friends were, you know, a little hesitant about coming on here to talk about it. Now, what happens if you break the strike rules? Well, you could be thrown out of the guild altogether which would really be a problem for employment once the strike ends because you can't be on a show as a writer or an actor if you're not in these guilds. It's like one of the rules. You could also be fined, monetarily fined, which is especially horrible when you're not making any new money. You could also just be sort of blackballed in a way, like other writers might not want to work with you. So yeah, it was not great to cross the picket lines. But what's really hard about this is that everyone else in the industry is affected by the strikes, like people who are not in any of the guilds, whether they support them theoretically or not. There are tens of thousands of people, more than that even, who have not been able to work for months, even though they are not in the writers or actors guilds. So I'm talking about so many crew members, camera, sound, transpo, set designers, costumers, production, post-production, like editors and managers, and even just like the caterers. So, so many people are involved in getting movies and TV shows made, and this has put them out of work. And then, of course, the trickle effect is even if you're not a person who works in the industry, like you're not a driver or a caterer or set designer, but you work for someone who works in the industry who suddenly has to tighten their budget, everyone from the babysitter to the hairstylist to the retail stores to the restaurants, like so many things suffer in an economy where people aren't working. 
And again, coming off the pandemic, where Los Angeles was one of the most shut down cities in America, we are just taking hit after hit here as a city. It really does matter, and it makes it all the more infuriating that it took this long to make a deal. You know, there was this quote this summer in Deadline Hollywood, which that's a popular website for Hollywood industry news. There was a quote from an anonymous studio executive where he or she said that they were willing to wait the strike out until October. This is the quote. The end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. I mean, you can imagine the uproar over this quote. And I think there is some question to whether or not this quote is real, but it did take until almost October. And it definitely took until people were starting to lose their homes. And after all of that, the studios ended up giving the writers much of what they wanted. So was it worth it? It is going to be a really long recovery here. Number six, what does mandatory staffing minimums mean? So we've already covered how the main fight in the Hollywood strikes is about money, mostly the residual model and streaming, although there's also an increase in just the minimum basic agreement, the contract that is looked at every three years, and addresses not just minimum pay, but like a host of other things. And one of the things that the writers were asking for was a minimum staffing requirement. Now, this came out of a recent trend of something called mini rooms. So they call writers rooms, writers rooms, (laughs) and these are called mini rooms. Mini rooms happen before the project is actually greenlit, and it is just a small staff of writers. So let's say three or four people who plan and write several episodes or like the arc of a show. That small mini room, they are often paid less than a staff writer would be paid. They have less weeks to do their job. And then if and when the project gets picked up, then the studio needs less writers on the actual project itself because of these mini rooms. They've done this early work. So it ends up being less writing jobs for a shorter amount of time with less pay. And so the writers feel like everyone loses in the end with these mini room setups. Now, it is writers that are in these mini rooms. So it's writers participating in this. But it is it is complicated. The only real winner in the mini rooms were the studios because it was saving them a lot of money. It's like a cutting corner measure. And it was a pretty big point of contention for the strikes. The Writers Guild was asking for a minimum staffing requirement for all episodic television series. They wanted six writers for a pre-greenlit show. And for post-greenlit rooms, they were proposing one writer per episode, up to six episodes, and then one additional writer required for each two episodes. (laughs) I mean, it gets complicated. Up to a maximum of 12 writers is what they were asking for. That's a lot of writers. And the AMPTP pushed back on that point, like requiring a certain amount of writers for a writer's room. The studios replied early in the strike, like their quote around that was that, quote, a hiring quota is incompatible with the creative nature of our industry. Now, when you use phrases like hiring quotas, that's a buzzword for anti-union stances. But the truth is that I know several creative people who were hesitant on this part of the negotiations. It makes a lot of sense for most shows, but not all. And a lot of creative people chafe against these kind of dictates anyway, like being told exactly how many writers that they have to have. I'm told that it can dilute the process a little bit, like just what you're thinking, too many cooks in the kitchen. Of the most important points of the strike, money, residuals, transparency with the stream statistics, AI, the minimum staffing for writers' rooms feels like it was the most contentious point and the thing that I heard among my friends have the most varied opinions on. Like people were not all 100% in agreement with the minimum staffing requirements. It maybe just depends on what type of writer you are, what type of projects you work on. 
But it definitely, that one varied quite a bit. Okay, so number seven. This is a big one. What is the AI threat? Okay, so this is a huge deal and something that all creatives, like whatever kind of creative you are, should be concerned about across all industries. Music, visual arts, and in this case, writing and acting. There is a legit threat, not just on the horizon, but already here. So AI is artificial intelligence. It was already a concern, but with ChatGPT rolling out earlier this year, all writers have a legit worry here, not just Hollywood writers, book writers, everyone really has to worry about this. AI can put together story ideas and scripts, especially for shows that are more formulaic, and that technology is only getting better. So on the actor side, we've already seen AI using the likeness of very famous people convincingly. Have you ever watched the deep fakes, those videos of Tom Cruise or President Obama? They are impressive with how real they look. And it is terrifying, especially for background actors, where you could just use AI to recreate your likeness over and over and just insert it into a shot. But you wouldn't be getting paid for a day's work. You might get paid for one day's work, and they're going to use that. They're going to use AI to use that over and over again. That is a real problem. Now, I actually thought the Writers Guild had a mature take on the whole AI thing, given that this is such an enormous threat to their jobs, or at least to one section of their jobs. The WGA did not seek an outright ban on tools like ChatGBT. They just wanted acknowledgement that it wasn't a stand-in for writers themselves. Like, ChatGPT cannot get a writer's credit, nor can paid writers be forced to use ChatGPT. Although, as it turns out, they can if they want, if it helps them be more productive or enhances the story in some way. I believe that this AI stuff is still such an ongoing conversation and that it will get tweaked as we go. We are still in the beginning of this technology, and I am not sure we can even fathom where it's all going. (laughs) Just like when Netflix started shipping out physical DVDs in envelopes, we could not foresee then how streaming would come along and would change TV viewership. Or how when Facebook, it was just like a website for college students to find each other. We had no idea that that little website would eventually upend elections. I think we just don't know about AI yet. But I actually think that the WGA was smart and forward-thinking in how they approached this in their strike negotiations. So number eight of 10 things about the Hollywood strikes. Number eight, some notable things that happened during the strike that I want to tell you about. There were a lot of interesting things that happened during the strike. You might have seen pictures from the actual picket lines where writers and actors would strike outside of the major studios. They were carrying these black, white, and red signs. It would often be in the press when it was like a pretty famous actor out there on the picket lines. And then they also, the writers, they staged several reunions, I feel like, from actors and also from writers from beloved shows. Because, of course, when you have like the cast of Breaking Bad or whoever else would gather, like that gets you more press, right? Like that's more interesting to the average American than, you know, just normal writers or background actors, which, by the way, that's you know, who make up the vast majority of these guilds, but it just gets more attention when it's famous people on the picket lines. And of course, it's not the most famous and successful people who are going to benefit from these negotiations. It is more the regular members of the guild who really need these minimums to be in place. So I always cheer it on when famous people like make their stand. And I just don't understand why sometimes they get hate for it. Like, they don't really need to be out there picketing. Like, they know the game as well as anyone. They know that them being out there gets a headline, which in turn brings attention and hopefully, like, pressure to the studios to end this thing. Back in July, when the actors first went on strike, the actor Fran Drescher, you, I'm sure, famously know her as The Nanny, she is now the SAG-AFTRA president. And she gave a fiery speech about the way 
that billion-dollar corporations are squeezing out the average worker. That speech went viral and for good reason. Also, I don't think anyone could have missed the Drew Barrymore kerfuffle early in September when she announced that her daytime talk show was going to resume production after months over the summer of not working. She tried to make it sound like she was looking out for her crew and all of those affected by not working, which is a valid argument, by the way. It is actually something that wasn't talked about enough. But the way she did it was tone deaf. The timing was terrible. And her apology video was awful. And she ended up shutting down the production anyway, because the backlash was just so intense. It was... It was a mess. It's something that history is not going to look back on well for her. There were also a few standouts that I want to mention. Drew Carey ran what is now up to, because it's still ongoing, I believe, up to a $500,000 tab at two diners that are here in L.A. that are close to where the most active strikes are happening. So Bob's Big Boy in Burbank and then Swingers in West Hollywood It fed strikers off the picket lines for five months on his tab. Isn't that insane? Also, Seth MacFarlane, he put in nearly $6 million into the entertainment community fund that is meant to help workers impacted by the strike. So there are some good stories coming out of this like that, but there's a lot of hardship too. So number nine of 10 things to tell you about the Hollywood strikes. Number nine, what was finally negotiated? Okay, remember that the actors, they are still on strike. As I record this, they are still in negotiation. And the writer's strike isn't technically over until all the members have all voted to accept the new agreement. Although I'm pretty sure it's going to pass because they did get most of what they wanted. Here is what they got. A pay increase. Basic weekly wages for the next three years will be 5% bump up. This first year, 4% in the second year, and 3.5% in the third year. When staff writers are individually responsible for writing particular episodes, then now they must be paid script fees on top of their basic weekly wages. So there was, um, you know, it's more complicated than that, but there was a lot of wins in there. They also got most of what they wanted out of the minimum staffing requirements. Now, this will be determined by the length of the show. So what was finalized was at least three writers must be hired for shows that have six episodes or fewer, which, as we know, that's the thing that's happening now. And there's some problems with that, but that is a trend. I don't know if that's all budgetary. There's also some attention span things, I think, tied to that, just like culturally. But anyway, shows with six episodes or fewer must have at least three writers And if a season has between seven and 12 episodes, then they must have five staff writers. And for shows with more than 13 episodes, that number jumps to six writers. They're also required to keep a certain number of writers for the duration of the production. And also screenwriters got a pretty big bump in pay as well as a more timely payout structure, which we didn't talk about much. But the way that writers get paid It's also a sticking point. So this gives a standard structure for screenwriters. So they're not forced sometimes for months waiting on checks. My friend Jill talks about that too also over in the Secret Stuff episode that I mentioned earlier. The streamers did not totally cave on viewership transparency. They're still sort of playing dumb about that, which is insane. But they did commit to sharing a certain number of hours watched and bonuses that are commiserate with successful shows and movies. So this is sort of like the streamer's version of residuals. I already explained a little bit about what was accomplished with AI, but the studios agreed that AI can't be a writer, can't be credited or paid as such, but they would not commit to stop using scripts to train AI. So artificial intelligence gets trained by scraping existing things, existing scripts and products, and there is no commitment to stop doing that. So again, this is an ongoing conversation, and we just don't know where it's going to go. Okay, and finally, number 10, how are the Hollywood strikes of 2023 going to affect you, the average viewer? More than any other strike in the past that has gone over 100 days, 
this strike might not be as noticeable to the average viewer, at least not anytime soon, because of the sheer number of options for things to watch out there. Yes, your favorite TV show, it might be delayed in getting its new season or starting its new season, but we've kind of gotten used to that with prestige TV, just sometimes having years between seasons. So I just don't think that it will be the gaping hole that it has been in the past. Also, non-scripted shows, of which there are many reality shows, they continued on. That is why we can watch current episodes of shows like America's Got Talent and The Masked Singer and even Real Housewives. So what you might notice, though, is that some shows have gotten canceled as collateral damage. Now, shows get canceled every single year, but again, everyone has lost so much money that shows that were on the cusp, shows that aren't, you know, proven to be successful, the studios are being a little bit ruthless right now. And that's a hard thing. I'm hearing that from a few different friends in the industry that that is part of the damage here. This strike is said to have had a $5 billion dollar impact on California's economy. Maybe you saw that our governor had to intervene and this has been a whole thing. It is just staggering. I have so many friends who haven't been able to work for the last five months. And last week, though, they were suddenly full steam ahead. I was supposed to get together with a friend last Friday and she called early in the week and said that she had scripts due. And listen, no one has ever been happier to be on a deadline than she was. And I'm so happy for her. I know that this episode is a little different than usual, but like I said at the beginning, I want to talk to you more about current events and cultural events. And next year on this show, I'm going to be looking for topics where we can tell each other 10 things about something we know a lot about, but that others might not. For this episode and this topic, I hope you got something out of me sharing about the strikes. Whether or not you end up feeling the effects of the strikes, everyone is influenced by Hollywood. And things like wage disputes and the future of artificial intelligence, it matters. It all matters. It will affect all of us at some point. So thanks for listening to me share from my corner of the world here in Los Angeles. I hope that it brings about a great conversation in your life this week. Thanks for listening, friends. Now go share something. You've just listened to an episode of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. For show notes and links, go to 10thingstotellyou.com. Make sure you're following us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. And you can also join our free connection group on Facebook to discuss episodes and topics. For bonus content, ad-free episodes, and monthly Zoom gatherings with me, join my Secret Stuff Patreon community by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash secret stuff. Thanks for listening.